I'm going to start off by asking you this question. The answer will be obvious. We, we human beings, we don't like things we don't like, do we? Right? In fact, most of us, except the weirdly weird, will go out of our way to avoid things we don't like. Right? Of course we will. For example, some of us have foods that we don't like. Is that true? Yeah, right? I have a reputation for being a picky eater. Even though I have that reputation, I prefer to refer to myself as a careful eater. Because there are a couple of things I just can't eat. They don't agree with my, my body, my physiology. I can't eat anything that has milk in it, which eliminates ice cream and cheese and things like that. I know somebody just sighed, like, oh, man, like, why do you live? I, there's, uh, you have to come up with other reasons. Yeah. I can't eat wheat either. No bread, no pasta, right? But I'll actually try anything. I've eaten rattlesnake, I've eaten possum, I've eaten turtle, I've eaten squirrel. I've eaten food from every country I could think of. I love trying new foods. I just can't eat those two things. And then, then there are three foods, though, that I just don't like. And my mom's sitting out here watching, and, and she knows this very well because she's been contending with it my whole life. In fact, she cooked these things for me constantly. And I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know whether I didn't like them first, and then she cooked them, or she cooked them and I didn't like them. I don't know how this happened. But those three foods are eggplants in any form. I don't care how you make them. It doesn't matter. Oh, but the way I make them, no. No. <laughs> Mushrooms, same deal. Probably because I don't care for frogs, and it used to be a thing that they said frogs sat on mushrooms or toads sat on toadstools. And maybe, I don't know. And then Brussels sprouts. Once again, you can fry them. You can put bacon on them. You can wrap them in sushi. Doesn't matter. Ugh. Anyway, I don't like them. I don't even like being reminded that they exist in the world. So, now, you might have something other than food that you avoid because you don't like it. Maybe you avoid exercise because you don't like it. Maybe you avoid driving. There are a lot of people who avoid driving. Maybe you don't like to fly. Maybe you avoid airplanes. Maybe you don't like the beach. Maybe you don't like swimming pools. Maybe you don't like cold weather. We were up in New York and it was a bit cold, you know, a couple weeks ago. No, I don't like cold weather. You get the point. It's human nature to avoid things that we don't like. In fact, though you might not think it, and this is kind of interesting maybe for you, there are statements in the Bible that I don't like as a pastor. Don't judge me. But this is true. I'm being honest with you. I told you I'll always be honest with you. I'm being honest with you. There are statements in the Bible I simply don't like. I have to contend with them, but I don't like them. But today, even though I really don't like it, we're going to be talking about one of those statements. And the statement we're going to be talking about today doesn't really make any sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it hurts my head every time I think about it. Like, how is this a thing? How is this in the Bible? I don't like it, but I feel that I have to talk about it. And I have to talk about it because it's important. And I have to talk about it because it applies to every single one of us without exception. 
The statement that we're going to be talking about today answers a question. It answers a very important question, but it's a question to which I don't like the answer one bit. I don't like the answer at all. It's a question that we're all asking, but the answer is very troubling. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into part two of the messy middle. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for all the planning and organizing and leaving on time and all that stuff that it took to get us here so we can gather as your ecclesia, as your community, so that we can worship you in song, so that we can study your word, and so we can come to understand you better, so that we can draw closer. God, we ask that you bless our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now... Here's the question. What do we do when there's nothing we can do? What do we do when there's nothing we can do? What do we do when it is what it is, but we don't like what it is? As things stand today, there is a lot of what it is. Isn't there? We talk about this all the time. The world's gotten weird, and it just is. There's a lot of what it is that we don't particularly like in our world today. Some people are worried about safety, constantly worried about safety. I grew up in Miami. We were constantly worried about safety. Some people are worried about their job or worried about their career or worried about their future job or their future career. Some people are worried about their health. Some people are worried about their wealth. Some people, we call them parents, are worried about their children. Some people are worried about their spouse. Some people are worried about their parents. Some people are deep in debt. Some people can't afford their lifestyle. Other people can't afford to retire. Some people are alone. Others are worried that they're not doing as well as their friends or their contemporaries or their neighbors. There's so many things that keep us up at night. So, what do we do about these things when there's really nothing we can do about these things? Well, most of us will do one of three things. We'll worry, we'll complain, and or we will stress about them because that's what people do, right? I mean, that's what we do. But the Bible presents us with a different approach, and it's an approach that I would have never chosen for myself, and it's an approach that I suspect you wouldn't have chosen for yourselves either. The approach comes to us courtesy of James, James, the brother of Jesus. And James' instruction has to be the most counterintuitive and possibly the most insensitive instruction in the entire Bible. And the reason I'm saying that is, the reason I'm saying that it's counterintuitive or that it's insensitive is because James just makes a blanket statement. He makes a blanket statement to all believers, regardless of their specific circumstances, regardless of their specific situations. James had no idea what we would be dealing with, and yet he told us how we would have to deal with it all, notwithstanding. And we would be insane. We would be mad not to take his instruction seriously. Do you know why? Because James said it. 
James, the brother of Jesus. James saw his brother crucified and then saw him after he rose from the dead and believed that he was the Messiah. And then James led the church, the gathering of believers in Jerusalem, for about 30 years after the resurrection. James believed his brother was his Lord for the rest of his life including the time while he was in Jerusalem leading the local church and things were going not so well. Because you see, during those 30 years, the church in Jerusalem was primarily Jewish. It was made up of Jews who had chosen to follow Jesus. And the rest of the Jewish community considered these people blasphemers. We would call them heretics today. That word didn't exist back then, so they referred to them as blasphemers. And as a result, these Jews that believed that Jesus was their Savior and Messiah, they were ostracized from the society, and they were ostracized from the temple. And as a result, they were poor, and the rest of the Jewish community made life quite difficult for them. Indeed, this is interesting. Things were so bad, and this is in the Bible, things were so bad for the Jesus followers in Jerusalem that the Apostle Paul essentially started a GoFundMe for them. You can look this up. Paul traveled around the Mediterranean Rim collecting money from Gentile Jesus followers to take back to Jerusalem to help the Jerusalem believers because they were so impoverished because they were so persecuted. So for 30 years, James carried this weight. And as a result, James was intimately aware with the difficulty and the trials that these Jews were Facing, these Jewish Jesus followers were facing every day. So that gives James a great deal of credibility. He lived through it. He was responsible for the entire persecuted community of Jesus followers in Jerusalem. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of the persecution, James gave a very clear instruction to the community of first century Jesus followers and to us as well. And here's what James said. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings. This is just how he opens up his letter. It's believed that James wrote this letter in the 40s or 50s AD, which puts it somewhere 7 to, you know, 20 years after the crucifixion. He wrote it to the Jewish believers who were scattered among the other people groups, so scattered among the nations, that's the word Gentiles, that's the Hebrew word goyim, scattered among the nations outside of Jerusalem around the world. So roughly 15 years after the resurrection, roughly 15 years into the rising persecution of Jesus' followers, James still believing that his brother was indeed the Messiah, wrote this letter of encouragement to the persecuted faithful far from home and far from their ethnic people. So what, is James, what are James' words of encouragement to them? And this is the part that I don't like, okay? So you're clear. And by the way, I'm going to jumble the word order. I'm going to jumble the syntax a little bit so you can see James' point a little bit more easily. So here's what he says. Verse 2. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, whenever, whenever you face trials, all the trials. So I want you to note this as we begin. James did not say if you were ever to face a trial. If on the outside chance you're to face a trial, he did not say that. That would imply that trials are somehow optional. I need to let you in on a very 
poorly kept secret. Trials in this life are not ever optional. Trials in this life are not ever optional. Jesus was very clear on this issue. In John 16, we've talked about this before. In this world, you what? Will have trouble. Not might, not may, not could, will. You will have trouble. So not if, when. When the trouble that fills the world shows up on your doorstep, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now also implied in this statement is that there is nothing. There is no thing that we can do to, stru- to stop those trials from coming. Like we talked about last week, we live in a world that is infiltrated by sin. And along with that sin came sorrow, came death, came illness, and came disappointment. And sadly, as a result of those things, we have found that we can't keep them away by praying real hard. Or by hoping against hope. Or by worrying. Or by trying to run. Or by ignoring. Or by pretending not to notice them. In fact, the original Greek indicates that those things are not only going to come, but they're going to come when we're not expecting them. I told you I didn't like this. They're going to take us by surprise, and no thing, nothing will stop them from coming. So when those troubles come, here's what you're to do. And remember, this was not my idea. James said it, and I don't like it. But here's what James said, and I told you I'd wiggle things around a bit. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Do not think of the out of the blue surprise challenge that just ruins your world. Don't think of it as a bad thing. No, do not think of it as a bad thing. I want you to think about it, James was saying, in an entirely different, entirely counterintuitive way. When everything comes crashing down around you, I want you to think of it as a source of joy. You beginning to see what I mean about not liking this verse? I mean, seriously, how can James even say this? He doesn't know us. He doesn't know our lives. He doesn't know what we're going through. He doesn't know what we're feeling. He doesn't know what we're facing. How can he just make a blanket statement like that? We're supposed to be filled with joy when a horrific trial comes and knocks the wind out of us? To which James would say, none of that matters. When you are faced with a trial of any kind, count it as joy. I mean, come on, Jimmy. How... That's what his friends called him. How can you say that? Well, he could say it because, and you go, wait a minute, you're not serious, are you? You're not going to justify that crazy statement, are you? He says, because you know. You need to be able to see the bigger picture. You need to be able to see through the horror to see the purpose. You need to remember this, James continues, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. All right, let's break that down. What is a test? Well, a test, or testing in this context, means to ensure that your faith is real, to ensure that your faith is authentic and not just put on, not just a show. Testing is the process used to determine the authenticity of something. So James is saying the trial that you're facing is testing the authenticity of your faith. The trial is exposing 
whether your faith is real or not. Faith here is referring to your confidence in God. So think of it like this. Trials expose the authenticity of your confidence in God, don't they? I mean, it is true, isn't it? When we're surprised by a trial, we do, and we really do, absolutely discover something about our faith, don't we? In the moment that we're surprised by a trial, we discover what we really, truly believe, and we discover what we were only pretending to believe. We really discover what we were only telling people that we believe, or what we believed when we were kids, but we never really came to embrace when we became adults. In a trial, the test kicks in, and the results are immediately evident. I've heard it put this way. When circumstances begin to deteriorate, artificial, counterfeit, what's in it for me, faith, deteriorates right along with it. So James was telling us, whether we like it or not, there is joy in discovering how real our faith is. There is joy in discovering that even though I wouldn't volunteer for the trial I'm going through, it is helping me to discover something about myself, something about my faith, something that I wouldn't have been able to find out any other way. In the midst of trials, we are confronted with the authenticity or lack of authenticity of our faith. And James is saying there is joy in making that discovery. And this perspective of faith stands in opposition to the way that many pastors insist on teaching. But I want to set the record straight, at least here for us. Our faith in Jesus is not the way we get God to do the things we want him to do for us. That's not what our faith is at all. Our faith in Jesus does not bestow upon us some magical powers or access to a secret formula that gets God to do the things we want him to do. That's not what our faith does. We can't name it and claim it. We can't pray our way into prosperity. doesn't work like that. Faith is nothing more than confidence that God has already done something. Faith is confidence that God is who God revealed himself to be in the New Testament and that God will do everything that he promised. Faith is a response to God, and it is never, ever a way to leverage God or to get God to do something he wasn't already intending on doing. Does anyone have any questions? No, that's clear, right? All right, so to sum up, whenever you face trials of many kinds, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You can't avoid the trials of life. And when you face trials, you discover something about yourself, something about your faith, and something about God. And if during the trial, if you take a step back for, the, for a moment and you regain your perspective, you can actually find joy in those discoveries. And you already know that the trial, testing your faith, does two things. And here's what it does. It demonstrates whether your faith is real and it produces perseverance. Over time, the trial that you're facing will produce perseverance. Okay, what does that even mean? Perseverance is the ability to hold up under, to bear up under, to hold up under pressure and stress. Trials that we did not sign up for, even some trials that we did sign up for, exercise our faith. 
and they do the things that exercise does. They make us stronger. They make our faith stronger. And these exercise trials, if you will, find us. We don't go out seeking them. They find us. We don't want them to find us, but they find us. But about them, James told us to keep on exercising, to not stop exercising too soon. Now, I want to tease out this exercise analogy just a little bit. You make your muscles bigger and stronger by exercising them, yeah? So if you want your faith muscle to be stronger, you need to exercise it and not stop exercising too soon. And here's how James put it in verse 4. He said, keep going. Let perseverance finish its work. This is not what we are inclined to do, but it is so important. In other words, James is saying, don't tap out in the middle of the process. Don't give up in the middle of the process. He's saying this trial is at the core of what God is doing in your life. And if you tap out too soon, you will miss the blessing. And you don't want to miss the blessing. The thing that you want God to remove is the thing that God has chosen to use. The tension in our lives sits at the center of God's activity in our lives. Do you know that's true? Well, let me ask you this. If right now you're in the midst of a trial, what is it that you're praying about right now? You're praying about the trial, aren't you? Like it or not, that trial has your undivided attention, doesn't it? I've talked about this before. A few years ago, when my back, a bad back, when my back was in crisis, my back pain was the only thing I could think of, I promise you. It was the only thing I could pray about, I promise you. And my only prayer was, help! That was my prayer. There was literally no other prayer going on in my life. No other prayer. God had my undivided attention. That's how trials work. They exercise our faith and stand right in the middle of what God is doing in our lives. That's the reason that our trials inform our prayers. And James said, don't tap out. Don't tap out. Don't give up. There's a positive outcome waiting at the end of it. So he continued, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now in the Greek, uh, this is actually a bit of a play on words. It loses that in the translation. But basically it would sound like this in English. Let perseverance complete its work so that you will be complete. Let perseverance complete its work so you will be complete. Let the process play out so that you will have a grown-up faith and not a child's faith. We know it to be true that the only way to have a grown-up faith is to face a grown-up trial and to experience God's faithfulness in the midst of that trial. So we need to ask God to use it until God chooses to remove it. And though from where we stand with 2,000 years and 1,600 miles separating us from James, we ask him, how do you know this is going to work in my situation, James? But history shows us that James absolutely knew. James understood how something good could come from something so very bad. But James also knew just how big a task he was asking us as believers to take on. So he said, here's what I want you to do. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
If any of you lack the perspective to, to see this trial the way that God sees it, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God for wisdom who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But there's a problem with this, isn't there? When we're going through a tough time, we are not asking for wisdom. It's not wisdom that we want. What is it? It's relief. We want relief from the tough time. We don't want to be smarter, wiser. We want relief. But James said, I understand that. But if you're having a tough time, understanding what good will come from your tough time, you're going to need to do something. You're going to need to not try to walk away from the tough time, but rather walk into the tough time. Lean into the tough time and ask God for wisdom. And if you ask God for wisdom, James said, God will always answer that prayer. Say, God, give me eyes to see this the way that you see it. It's that simple. When we can see things the way that God sees them, we'll begin to see things that way more and more and more. Once we get in the habit of looking at things the way God looks at things, we'll we'll start to do that more and more and more. And when we do that, we will be equipped to keep going, to persevere through whatever it is we're going through. So let's review, and then I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. Okay, here's our review. James told us to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then James said, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Don't tap out too soon. But if you get to the place where you're about to break, where you're about to be crushed under the weight of your trial, then ask God to help you to understand what he's up to. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You got all that? Okay. Now, have you ever seen anybody do it? Have you ever watched somebody do this? Do you personally know anyone who has faced those trials of many kinds? Do you personally know of someone who's gone through a trial so severe, so extreme, that you asked yourself, I wonder how I would have handled that trial. I wonder how I would handle what he or she is going through. But then you watch that person navigate their way through the trial with some sort of supernatural faith and confidence in God. And you saw them just hang in there and fight and be filled with joy the whole way. Have you ever seen that? I've met a few people like that. They're really among my heroes. My heroes don't tend to be sports figures or politicians or actors or anything like it's those people it's those people that are so inspirational because i've seen their faith being tested and instead of buckling instead of giving up instead of bailing out and walking away they inspire other people and they give other people hope and they teach other people about true faith in fact it is so much more inspirational to watch someone go through a horrific challenge and yet maintain their faith. It's so much more inspirational to watch that than it is to watch somebody who's living a blessed life or everything's going, going their way. Even if they're always giving God the credit and glory, that's not as inspirational. And the reason that's true is this. When we see them, we see hard evidence of the kind of faith in God that shows how it's possible to endure just about anything, to endure just about any challenge that we'll ever face in life. 
They're people whose prayers go completely unanswered, but their confidence in God remains firm. One friend of mine who showed me what that looks like was my friend Brian Fox. Now, some of you might remember Brian. He was a fixture here at Hammock Street Church when I first arrived for the first few years. He used to sit to my left in the front row, and he would talk to me throughout the sermon. I mean talk to me, conversations with me, questions, answers, whatever. Sat right there. Now, Brian died about 10 years ago. He was 52 years old when he died. Brian was a Jewish lawyer. We had something in common. He became a Jesus follower before I did. He became a Jesus follower in the late 1980s when he was just beginning his law practice. Actually, a person from our Hammock Street community, I will not point the person out, but is the person who led him to Jesus. I met this person at Brian's funeral and found out. But here's Brian's story briefly. One winter, Brian and his wife were skiing, and on the way down the mountain, Brian fell. It was unclear whether he fainted or whether he had had a seizure, but when he got back home, he went to the doctor. And after a battery of tests, he received one of the worst medical diagnoses a person can receive. Brian had a GBM. That is a brain tumor. That's called a glioblastoma multiforme. It is the deadliest of all the brain tumors. And the doctor said to Brian at that time, you've got about six months to live. Go home and get your affairs in order. But Brian's faith in Jesus told him otherwise. As Brian explained it, to me, I just knew God wasn't done with me yet. I wasn't about to give up. I knew that this would give me a newer platform and a bigger platform and a better platform from which to tell people about a life lived for Jesus. So Brian went home, and instead of getting his affairs in order, he got to work. He changed his diet. It became macrobiotic, whole food, raw food, crazy stuff. He used to go to Whole Foods to buy raw sprouts and things from the back of somebody's truck. It was like this illicit thing where he's buying these coolers filled with alfalfa and all sorts of crazy green stuff. It was really weird. Changed his diet. He changed his diet so that he could, he could work on his health. He changed his diet so that all he thought about was, what am I putting in my body that will heal me and not harm me? He changed his physical activity routine. He included more strength training. He included more conditioning. Actually, during the time that he was sick, he and a buddy, they invited me, but my wife said no, got on a motorcycle and rode the entire ice road trucker route, which I'm really glad I didn't go. But anyway, he said it was terrifying, but he did it. He changed the way that he interacted with people too. And he vowed to never leave a conversation with any person without giving Jesus all the credit for his blessings. And do you know something? Six months came and went. And then a year came and went. And then two. And then three. God was blessing his efforts. And Brian began to lead people, lots and lots of people, to Jesus. And Brian made himself available to cancer patients all over the country. And before long, people from all over the country were calling him or flying down to visit with him or flying him up to visit with them so they could learn his protocol and so they could listen to his positive message about living for God. And I was blessed to be with him for a few of those meetings, including one with my mother-in-law, with Beth's mom, who had just recently been diagnosed. And Brian sat there and told her all about Jesus and all about his walk with Jesus. And Beth's mom would later tell me before she died that Brian's words had a profound impact on her. I will see her in heaven because of Brian's work. Brian became something of a hero to those of us who knew him. 
And he almost never, almost never, let his diagnosis get him down. He said that God had blessed his life too much for that. He got closer with his wife. He got closer with his young daughter. He took that situation and counted it as joy and lived with joy everywhere he went. He left a trail of amazed people in his wake. And during that period of time after the diagnosis, he survived a number of brushes with death. He went to surgery a few times. I actually went to the hospital. I had to feed him soup. I never, have I ever fed any of you guys soup? No. Okay, I mean, fed him. I mean, it was just amazing. And he kept coming out on top over and over. And he repeatedly said, all by the grace of God. And Brian was able to prolong that six-month sentence for over nine years, which is an unheard of amount of time for somebody with his diagnosis. There were more than 1,500 people at his memorial service Typically, you get 20, maybe 40 if they really like the person. But each person had a story to tell of God's grace that they recognized because of Brian's trial. And just hours before he passed, I was sitting with him in his home. That's a younger me. And he grabbed my hand, and he looked into my eyes, and he said, please make sure that you tell my parents, his parents, Jewish parents, not believers. And he said, don't worry about me. He said, make sure my dad knows. Don't worry about me. I know where I'm going. And I'm looking forward to meeting Jesus, my Lord and Savior. And I told his father that at the memorial service. And the last words that I remember Brian saying to me are these. These last nine years have actually been the, get this, the best of my life. I've never felt closer to God and they wouldn't change one day of the whole ordeal. Ooh, man, right? I mean, that's inspirational. That's the way to count it all joy when facing a lethal trial. That's life in the messy middle. When you see that kind of faith, it, it, it impacts you. It changes you. You never forget it. It stays with you forever. Brian lived his life to the full right up until the very end. He didn't give up when he received his diagnosis. He stood up to be counted for Jesus. To use James's words, Brian, let perseverance finish its work to his last breath. Brian chose to lean into the challenge rather than to tap out. And I want you all to note this. Brian's faith did not reverse the consequences of a life lived in a fallen, sin-infected world. Brian knew that, and he embraced that reality. He didn't ever expect that it would. We prayed for complete healing, as we should. We prayed for a miracle. Again, that's our calling. But Brian understood the realities of his faith, and he understood what it means to live life in a broken world. Faith is not magic. Faith is not a clever way of getting God to do the things that we want him to do. Faith is how we respond to the faithfulness of God. And when people saw how one faithful follower of Jesus lived that truth out, it changed their lives. It changed my life. Brian's faith produced perseverance and courage in the middle of a fallen world. And Hammock Street Church, I'm telling you this story for a reason. It is very easy to overlook the faith of the people who continuously get a yes from God. It's the people who get a no from God, but whose faith remains rock solid that change our lives 
and change the world. And this was James' goal for his first century audience. And this is James' goal for you and James' goal for me. In the world in which James lived, it never got any better. Things never really improved for him. But the unwavering faith and confidence in their Savior literally, literally changed the world. We know about Jesus because their faith changed the world. And through this, we're reminded that God will use every trial until God chooses to remove them or not. Brian understood this. You know people that understand it too. And James' instructions are an invitation for all of us to step into our trials and say, God, use this trial until you choose to remove this trial. God, use this to remind me that you're faithful. God, use this so that I understand my confidence in you is real. So if we'll lean in when we're, and when we're confused, we'll ask God for wisdom. If we'll live our lives with open hands, not with closed fists, with live our lives with an open heart, then we'll experience the amazing faithfulness of our God through trials that we did not choose but that God has chosen to use in us. Here's how James finishes this section of his letter. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood that test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That was Brian. Maybe it's going to be you. Maybe it's going to be me. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Not the one who tries to pray the trial away, not the one who tries to obey the trial away, not, trial away, not the one who tries to faith the trial away. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test and having discovered that their faith is real, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And do you know what that crown of life is? Neither do I. I have no idea what that means. I don't. Nor do any of the commentaries that I read. Nobody seems to know what that means. But it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like a really good thing. Put that on your list of questions to ask Jesus when you get to heaven. But James' point is clear. God values and uses persevering faith. And God has invited us to step into this realm and to begin to see the blessings and the trials that we face in this life. Because we now know that persevering faith leaves its mark on the world. And it leaves its mark on the people around us. We don't choose the trials. But we do choose our response to the trials. And James has invited us to lean in and to allow God to purify and to strengthen our faith in the midst of what we would never, ever choose. The challenges that each of us faith impact each of us differently, but they present all of us with the same opportunity to allow perseverance to finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to incorporate the following prayer into your prayer life. Maybe you've never prayed because you don't know how to pray. So if you don't, and that's you, this is a really good prayer to start with. It's very simple. Here it is. Heavenly Father, use this until you choose to remove this. Let's try it together, shall we? Heavenly Father, use this until you choose 
to remove this. And if you can't imagine how God could possibly use what you're facing right now, then do what James tells us to do. Ask God for wisdom. Because James said that is a prayer that God will answer every time. Brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that those trials are simply a test of your faith and a test of your faith produces perseverance if you let it. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But if you just aren't sure how you get there, if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, as we wrap up, I want to leave you with three questions that you can think about this week. And here are the three questions I'm leaving you with. Number one, has your faith or your confidence in God ever been tested? Okay, that's one. Number two, how'd you do? Did you pass the test or did you fail it? And number three, did you emerge from the test with your faith intact? If so, why? And if not, why not? As I said at the beginning, these are not my favorite verses, but they're some of the most relevant verses in the entire New Testament. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, those are tough words. But please give us the wisdom and courage to embrace what we've heard today. And Father, would you help us all to catch our breath? Would you help us to step back and see what you're up to in us and what you want to be up to through us? God, thank you for those faithful people we've known who've made a difference in our lives as we've watched them live with their faith through dire circumstances and through the darkest times. I pray, God, that all of us would come to know such powerful faith. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.